Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, as we come to Hosea 2, there are hard phrases and there's, there's some sharp words in this text. And yet when you give these to your people, it's never to harm them but to heal them. And so help us by your grace be able to hear them with the heart that's behind them. Help us be able to, to hear them um, genuinely, to not step over them too quickly into your grace and your kindness, which is, is always ever-present, but that you might come and minister to us in some ways by calling us out in order that you can draw us back or draw us deeper. Father, what we need today, probably more than anything else, is to have a renewed and increasingly larger vision of who you really are. The completeness of who you are, not, not some of your attributes, not some of what makes you God, but all of who you are. Might you do something in this time that, that we couldn't even dare of praying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was flying back from Boston a number of years ago. I was coming from visiting actually uh, the Ocho family and, and a church planting team that we'd sent up from our church to go plant in Boston. So they were, they were fresh back there, getting some time with them, just seeing where their, where their mission field was and spending time kind of dreaming and planning and praying together. And, and then on, on my way back, I'm flying from Boston to Seattle and across the aisle from me was um, uh, one of my former professors from seminary, a guy named uh, Dr. David Wells. And so I'm sitting there, and we have this like six-hour flight together, and I was like, this is wonderful for me. It probably wasn't for him, but I just started peppering him with questions, and I was like, you know, Dr. Wells, I was one of your students, and read all your books, and, and, um, and I was just wondering, like, so I just got done visiting with the church planter we sent out, and our church is like five years old, and, and, and you know, we're training other people, and, and I, you know, I really love the local church, and just trying to figure out, like, I, I need some ideas. Like, give me, give me, like, what should we focus on as a church to make the biggest difference? What's the most important thing for us to do? And, and he, he, he looked at me, and um, he was born in Zimbabwe, uh, lived in England, so he's got this great accent, and, and he's just, and I won't try it, because um, it would be embarrassing, but, but, he, but he just said, Rob, you know what the answer is already. You already took the class, you already read the book. Because what I was looking for is like, give me the technique, give me, give me the strategy to like make things amazing. And he said, you already know. You need to focus on the holy love of God. And that term that he coined and he really unpacked in his, in his most recent book was a way to refer to this essential union of God's holiness and love. He impacts this idea in God and the whirlwind and the overarching task is to show this essential union between holiness or his, this holy love and our faith and our flourishing. We did that to recruit more sound people. That was my way of messing up with everything. That's my fault, not Isaac's. Um, David Wells says it like this. He says, today, our constant temptation, aided and abetted as it is by our culture, is to shatter the hyphen. Between this phrase, this holy love, if you have your programs, maybe look, look at your program, look at the title on it. We'll put this up on the slide. You see that hyphen? The goal today is to, to, to reclaim this hyphen, to not just have a God who is, is, is holy, 
And to not just have a God who is love, but to have a God who is God. To pull these together. If you have a God who is holy, the way that works out in our culture, I would say this is probably a poor way of working out that phrase, but the way it would work out in our culture is you, you end up with a faith that, that can be very heavy and harsh. It's all judgment and no mercy. He's altogether other, immeasurably pure. What our culture typically does is we, we, we jettison that though and we, we, we highlight the love of God, which he is, infinitely so. But then you turn the cross, you, you empty of it, of its significance and its power and its need. The hyphen, it reorients us. And Hosea 2 is going to highlight this hyphen, this holy love of God. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? I'm going to start at verse 2, read down to verse 13. Lord willing, we'll get through the whole chapter today. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the horror. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her way with thorns so I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away the wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig tree, of which he said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a force, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. Feel free to grab a seat. Hosea is a hard book. Hosea is a hard book, isn't it? And I think in just reading those, those words and how unfamiliar they are to us, maybe in the modern church, we hear that. Verse 2 is throwing down, and, and, and it just continues. The following verses, statement after statement, are just hard words. This, this phrase, to, to plead, it's this picture of Hosea the prophet and his wife, Gomer, and his children, and it's, it's a, it's a, the, the imagery is like, she won't listen to me. Kids, maybe you can reach her. 
Israel was so obstinate to God, they weren't responding, they weren't listening. And it goes on and on, and, and, and really as it gets down, as God's trying to wake us up to something, and, and really what it is, is you watch the flow of the verses. You get down to verse 5, it says, For their mother has played the whore, and she has conceived them and acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. That's a really key phrase, because what it's saying is Israel began to believe that its prosperity was due to something other than God's generosity to them. What they were doing, actually, is participating in idolatry. It was rampant at this time. Their prosperity, provision, and protection came from another God, not the, not the true God that, that claimed them and protected them and cared for them and nurtured them, but this God. And in Hosea, the name Baal is used over and over. It's a Canaanite God, a pantheon of gods. And that's who they really believed was actually providing their prosperity. And so Hosea is now speaking to them. And, and idolatry is rampant for them, but the, but the reality is it's rampant for us. It just goes by different names. So we may not have Baal, but we have things like a spouse, a home, grades, health, success, money, children, career, And that's what makes idolatry so dangerous. Is that it's oftentimes very good things that we turn into ultimate things that ultimately harm us. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, gives, a, I, I think, a really good definition of what an idol is. He said, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We see that worked out in verse 5. This is who gave us the prosperity. This is who provided for us. Here's a question that I was asking throughout this whole chapter is, is why does God care? Why does he care if, if, if we give ourselves to others? Why does he care if, if, if we find ourselves in the same spot that, that God's church did at this time? And to answer that, I think we need to keep going back to this opening metaphor in Hosea, this, this picture. The first three chapters are really built around this, this marriage. Whenever I get to officiate a, a, a wedding, I always begin it by talking, I give kind of like some framework of like, we're here um, to do at least these four things. We're here to see this couple get married. We're here to celebrate. If you're here and you're married, we're here to, to give you a moment to kind of like renew your vows. You know, grab your spouse's hand, put your arm in, and remember your vows with one another. But more than anything, we're here to glorify God who invented marriage in order that we might have some sense of the type of relationship that he has with his people. This unbreakable, this covenantal, this very personal, this very passionate love that he has for his people. And what was being played out during Israel's time, and this, this relationship between Hosea and, 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 and Gomer was an echo of what was happening between God and his people. Verse 2 says it like this, in the, the Good News Bible translated like this. It says, she is no longer a wife to me. Or we could say it has this sense. It's not necessarily a declaration. It's more of like a, like a like, it's like she's not my wife. It's like she forgot. Derek Kidner 
comment on this is it's like the reality has gone out of the relationship. That God had given himself to his people and his people had given themselves to God, but his people forgot it. Began to give themselves to others. Tim Chester in his commentary on Hosea says it like this, God's complaint against Israel was not that they had not done enough to become his wife. He was not expecting them to win his heart by their beauty or love. He was not expecting activity to lead to identity, being his wife. No, he had graciously rescued them, loved them, and made them his wife. He graciously made a covenant with them and set them apart as his people. But he did expect identity to lead to activity. He expected their identity as his bride to lead to actions of love. It's the same for Christians. God does not expect us to win his heart or earn his approval. We already have his approval in Christ. We are already the bride of Christ for whom he gave his life. Amen? Our problems arise when we forget this identity. Living holy lives is not about trying hard to become something we are not. It's about remembering who we already are in Christ and living in light of that reality. And yet, like this text says, sometimes the reality of the relationship has gone out. They forgot their identity. We do too. You can ask the question again, why does God care? Why does he care if we do this? I'll give you two answers. There's a lot of ways we can answer that. I'll give you two. Um, it dishonors him and it hurts us. We see that lived out in this marriage relationship. We see this in this story that's played out in the book of Hosea. We probably see that in our own lives. It dishonors God and it hurts us. We'll take both of those. Let me read verse 5 again. I'll read the second half of verse 5. I've never said the W word so many times in services before. I'll let you read the first half. I'll read the second half. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Here's a question that hit me as I was working through this. Who do I believe is the real reason for my success? Like, what do I attribute that to? And in asking that question, we find something kind of tricky. We find this, this, this picture of like, is it because, you know, I've worked hard, it's because I made good decisions in your own life, so if you have areas of success, you say it's because I made good choices, I chose not to go down bad pathways, I, I walked away from, from, from f- potential friends that might corrupt me and I got good friends, you know, I, I, I tried to, 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 to practice forgiveness and kindness, I learned discipline, I studied late into the night, you know, what are, what's the real reason for your success? And part of why it's a half-truth is the Bible is loaded. You go to the book of Proverbs, it talks about here's a wise way of living. But is that the full story? Is that it? Are the good things in your life the product of you making good decisions? I was watching the, um, the news recently, I think it was like a week ago, and it was the weather report, and we had just come off of like a 60-degree sunny day. It was absolutely glorious, and then it had started raining a ton, and then the weather report, the, the, the weather person was like, um, you know, the, the rain's going to start to subside going into the weekend, it's going to be a nicer weekend, but it won't be as nice as yesterday. That was a gift. And here's what I thought, a gift from who? Our culture uses that language, but I don't think the, this person was making a theistic statement. I don't think they're declaring the presence of a good, sovereign creator, God, who finally gave us, you know, sunshine. A gift from who? Why does this church exist? 
start asking that question is, I'm looking at verse 5. It's the result of 100,000 hours of countless number of people serving and caring and giving and befriending and cooking meals and spending time with each other and, and, and doing practical tasks around each other's homes and watching each other's kids and volunteering and serving and setting up early and staying late and cleaning and being generous with their funds and baptizing and discipling and all these things. But is that the only reason? Look at your GPA. Why, why do you, assuming maybe some of you had a decent GPA. <laughs> you're like, I didn't, but I'm still okay. That's God's grace. <laughs> and a lot of your knuckleheadedness. Um, why do I have good friends? Why is my health okay? Tim Chester again. We too can attribute blessing to or look for hope in the market or the government or our own hard work without recognizing that these are simply some of the means that God uses to bless us. We can sing God's praise on Sunday and then be functional atheists throughout the week. In other words, if God has no impact on our attitude to work, politics, or education, then whatever we might think in theory, we are functioning as if he does not exist. And it happened so subtly. And it was happening for God's people. That's where they're like, oh, I'm going to go after my lovers who gave me all this prosperity and all this protection. And they went away from the one that provided it. Look at verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. And then listen to this last phrase. So God is saying, I'm the one that provided this for you. Whatever means I used to bring it about. Whether it was through you or in spite of you, I'm the one that did it. And then look at the outcome of this. This is so sad, which they used for Baal. God supplied to his people, and then they took the things that he supplied, and they went into a pagan temple, and they worshiped a foreign god. I think verse 8 is a, is a really good example of what happens um, when you think what you have is the product of you performing well. It's also a really good assessment about where you're at with the things that you have. I think you can, you know, apply this to money, apply it to time, apply it to abilities. If you really think those are because of your hard work, you're going to hold them as such, and you're going to steward them as such. If you really believe it's because of God's grace and kindness, you're going to hold them as such. You're going to steward them. And now, because Hosea is such a hard book, let me give you something positive. Um, as you go through books like this, one of the challenges is that God was speaking to his church at a particular time that had a particular like spiritual condition. This may not be your condition. And so it's a lot of hard words, but maybe, maybe this could be a cautionary tale for you. Maybe this is a way of saying this isn't where you're at, but, and by God's grace you won't get there. Maybe it is where you're at and you need to be called out so you can be called back. But let me just start with something positive around generosity in Christianity. By all markers, Christians tend to be the most generous donors of money and ability and time in the world. It's amazing. I know you, you can hear things that there was, you, you, if you go research, you look at it, hospitals, universities, educational systems, missions to care for, for those that most of our culture discards, adoption, foster care. I mean, it's, it's absolutely stunning if you look back on the history of how God's people have invested in their community. So they, they can be very generous, and they do it because they believe what they have is a gift from the Lord, and so they use who they are in this world to serve them. We saw it with the Corleys in this video. But it's not all positive. That's enough buttering up. 
It's not all positive. Only 5% of church members give regularly. Households that make more than $75,000 are the least generous. Only 2.7% of Christians give away 10% or more of their income. Why? Well, the answer to that is probably super complicated, but I would suggest at least part of it is that you think that you, it's yours. And I think that it's mine. Instead of what this says, it's from the Lord. So it dishonors God. It also hurts us. Tim Keller, again, in his book, Counterfeit God, says it like this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. But see, God is trying to free us from the things that can't give us a value that lasts and a protection that can't be removed and a significance that can't be undermined. You know, what happens? You know, for some of us, we've gotten all the things we really long for. We said, oh, if I have that, if I finally get that, but then you get it and you realize it's still not enough. Oh, man, if I had a spouse. If I, if I could finally get a spouse. I really want that person. And, oh, it's a good desire. Oh, I want a spouse. And then you get married. And then you go, oh, I don't know if I want a spouse. <laughs> Oh, my dream home. I, oh, I want my dream home. I finally came back and get my dream home. And then you get your dream home. And then you meet your neighbors. <laughs> In my house, like our, um, our, the back of our house, it looks out at the, the hillside of, of Galbraith and Lookout Mountain. It's just a really pretty view. I love watching the sunrise over it. And, but my neighbors right behind me, they've planted a couple of trees. And I saw them planting them a few years ago. And I said, oh, what's going to happen? and they're fast-growing trees, and they're getting taller, and the top of it's coming up over the, the, the fence. And so I keep wondering when I'm going to have to go out in the middle of the night to chop down the top of the tree before it gets so high that it begins to obscure my view. These aren't bad things. They're just not ultimate things. Six-pack abs. Amen? You're like, no, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't either. I don't either. Six-pack abs. The myth, the myth of the unicorn. Yeah, you get six-pack abs, you're high school, eat whatever you want. You know what happens? Middle age. Middle age hits. It doesn't last. You get a starting spot on the state championship team, and you tear your ACL. God doesn't want us to give our hope and our affection, our confidence and trust into something that can let us down. All of those things can be wonderful, but they're not ultimate things. Why does God care? Because he wants us to honor him, but he wants us to build our life. He wants us to orient our lives around him that we might flourish rightly. This text talks about, as you get into verse 7 and 12, like you're going to go look for your lovers. You're not going to find them. They can't save you. No one can deliver you. They're not strong enough. And so in light of this then, we, we see this first in verse 6, this first of three therefores. So because of the choices you're making, my people, therefore, I'm going to get involved in a very particular way. And in verse 6, we see this says, therefore, I'll hedge her up. 
with thorns. In this time, you would plant a hedge to keep your animals in, let's say, and then you would plant like, um, like vines and thorns around it, and they would grow up over the hedge. So it's like barbed, it's like the, it's like, a, it's like 2,000 year old barbed wire. It's like that kind of picture of how we might keep people in. I'll build a wall. I'll, I will take back my grain. I will uncover her lewdness. When it talks about that, God is, he's not trying to shame. He's trying to expose though to the reality of the choices. I'll put an end to her myrrh. I will lay waste. He's saying, I'm going to frustrate your plans. I'm not going to let you have success because that path is ultimately a broken path. I will punish. Those I wills of judgment, they just roll. And it's hard. It's kind of like a parent, though. Like One of the challenges in parenting is knowing the leverage points to try to help your kids make the choices that they don't want to make in order that they become the type of people that maybe they don't even want to be right now, but you know they should be. And so you're going like, okay, if I remove the cell phone, I take away the AirPods, I take the keys to the car, you have younger kids, I, I don't let you watch Peppa the Pig. You know, whatever it is, like you're, you're pulling back, but as a parent, when you're doing it rightly, you're not doing it to harm. You're doing it to try to help. You know, and thankfully, God is so unlike us irrational parents. He does the exact minimum necessary to create the result that's needed. You know, when I think of it, God's parenting, I think of it like a, the world's most skilled surgeon with the best scalp. Not like an angry tyrant with an axe. And because that's true, and this language is so significant and so pointed what was going on must have been really a big deal. This is a severe mercy to wake God's people up. Perhaps it's one today to wake us up. It asked, wake us up to what? Look down at verse 13. I will punish her for her feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. That's the biggest issue. They forgot God. Now, it's not literally forgetting. Hosea shows that they actually were continuing to worship, but it was very half-hearted. God was not very central in their lives. He'd become more like a mascot. This word forgetting, it, 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 it's, it's like an ignoring, a marginalizing, a shrinking into a place of insignificance, or unimportance, or irrelevance. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a, an article, and it was talking about the five most exciting jobs and the, the five most boring jobs. And then it actually had a little add-on, said the five most exciting hobbies and the five uh, most boring hobbies. And so here, let me give you the list of the boring hobbies. Sleeping, that's the most boring. Religion. Watching television, observing animals. <laughs> I love that. It's, it's fantastic. Math. <laughs> so I know your list might be ordered different. That's fine. God is only slightly more exciting than being unconscious. And he's three degrees more boring than math. Kind of sums it up, though, doesn't it? 
David Wells in his book, God in the Wasteland, he really captures this, this de-holifying, this de-glorifying of God that settles into our lives. It says, it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition we've assigned him after having nudged him out of the periphery of our secularized life. They had forgotten God. Again, David Wells, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy, and his Christ too common. So it happens when he's not holy, holy, holy. Think about how our solar system works. What allows the planets to orbit without colliding, without careening off into the far reaches of the cosmos. The word forget, it also means oblivion. When we forget God, it's just like the, the, the sun at the, the center of the solar system. What you need is, is a sun that's weighty enough and dazzling enough and brilliant enough and strong enough to actually hold the planets to orbit so they don't spin off into nothing. They forgot God. And in the process, they forgot the very center of what kept them tethered to actually soar and to thrive. I'll do this next point quickly. Um, it's the, we need to remember, we need to wake up to the weightiness of God, but also the worthiness of God. If you look at verse 5 and 7, you know, they, 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 they thought that they're, they, I'll go to my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and drink. She shall pursue her lovers, verse 7, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. And you see that, you go like, oh, it's working. The church is coming back as people are coming back, but look at the motivation for returning. For it was better for me then than now. They're not coming to God for God. They're coming to God for what God can give them. He's just a means to an end. If Baal can supply, I'll go to Baal. If God can supply, I'll go to God. If I can create some hodgepodge, better yet. We see this work out, and a real threat to our faith is in this very uh, unique um, heresy called the, the prosperity gospel. That God is really just a means to an end, that he wants to, he's going to make me healthy, and he's going to make me wealthy, and if I pray the right prayers, and I do the right things, and I turn the right levers, then everything will be great. It hurts and harms people in so many ways. It's so disheartening to God, but it cheapens what we actually have in God, that the greatest gift that God gives is actually God himself. 
John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, God is the Gospel. I still remember reading this, just how, how it was such a gut check moment. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you have ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disaster, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? I think if you asked that question in, to Hosea too, I think another people would have said, yeah, that'd be fine. God's people had forgotten God. And so he steps in and he calls them out. Sometimes we forget God. And so he steps in and he calls us out. But he doesn't stop there. Thanks be to God, he actually draws us back in. And this is where we reclaim the hyphen. The holy love of God. There's actually three therefores in this text. The first one's in verse 6. In light of their foolishness and rebellion and dishonoring him, he comes with judgment. There's another therefore in verse 9 and continues this sort of I will statements of judgment. But then you have a, a therefore that makes no sense. But it's the very reason Christianity is so glorious. Let me read it for you. In light of you forgetting me, in light of you dishonoring me, in light of you wandering away, in light of you cheapening me, in light of you not seeing my holiness. Therefore, verse 14, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in judgment and steadfast love and mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Oh, there's so much in this text, and we're not going to walk through all of it. We're going to bring more of it into next week. I just want you to take away this, this big point. God's people have been unfaithful. God's people have, have used him. God's people have ignored him. Therefore, God responds with grace. They've been unfaithful, but God is forever faithful. These I wills of judgment, rightfully deserved, are replaced with I wills of steadfast love. Desperately needed. I will allure. I will speak tenderly. I love that phrase. It actually means I'm going to speak to the heart. 
I'll give vineyards, and I'm going to turn this valley of ache, and it, it actually meant a, a place of trouble. You know, as a reference back to Joshua 7, when God's people rebelled from him. He says, this place that you remember that was so, a place of judgment, I'm going to turn into a door of hope. I'll remove the bales. I'm going to take away your apostasy, your bad theology, your bad practice. I'll abolish the bow. I'm going to protect you. You keep going to all these other gods to find significance and satisfaction, protection and meaning, but I'm the one that can do it. And then I love this word betrothed three different times. I will betroth you. And these words that God is using, it's almost like the dowry that he's, he's, he's paying for a faithless bride. I'll betroth you in righteousness. I'll betroth you to me in unbreakable love and steadfast love. I will betroth you to me in mercy. Claim your mercy. I'll say over you, you are mine. Wherever you're at today and however you came in, in the reference points of God in your life, whatever weightiness or, or weightlessness he's had in your life, let this text draw you back in or draw you deeper. God wants you to build your life on him for his glory, but also your good that you might give yourself to things that cannot save and cannot help and cannot deliver. When I do a wedding, one of the things I always ask couples to do is to write letters to one another. So that during the ceremony, some spot, you just say like, you know, this way the people that came, maybe that don't know the person that you're marrying, they can hear like from your own words, why are you marrying this person? And so they'll stand up there and, and the way I set it up with them when they're writing them, I say, you know, these, these, these letters, are and I say this actually during the ceremony, they, they don't just serve their purpose today, as wonderful as they are to hear your commitments to one another, they actually are really helpful for later on in your marriage when you're not feeling this way anymore. I want you to go back and reread these letters and hear these words of love that you've spoken to one another. Now, the difference, you know, or like as you think about this, and couples have done this where it's like, you know, I'll get, get a call 10 years later, I really struggle. I'm like, do you still have the letters? Go back and read it. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's letter, as He speaks to our hearts people that have wandered, people that have been flippant, people that have been indifferent, people that have been insolent. The Father says, I, I so loved you who were so unlovely that I gave my son for you. I'm so faithful to you even though you've been unfaithful to me that Christ has been ripped open for us. That the faithful one Right? He betrothed himself to us in righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, in faithfulness, the very faithfulness of Christ, in steadfast love, the very unbreakable love of Christ, who then was broken upon a cross and wrote that letter, speaking to your heart in crimson ink, saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that it is finished. This invitation to be found and forgiven and claimed to have this statement declared of, oh, you are, I, I pronounce you mercy. Oh, I pronounce you my people. To take you who have not merited my love and to lavish it upon you. That's why God cares. He doesn't want us to give ourselves to things that can never heal us, never save us, never ride us, never give us an identity that can't be tarnished with our dumb choices. 
The I wills of judgment replaced with the I wills of grace upon grace upon grace. The holiness of God met with the love of God lavished upon the lives of people that would believe it. And you know what happens? Here's what happens. Here's some great news out of this text. You can actually respond. This text says, you'll call me my husband and you will call me my God. we begin to remember the weightiness of God, our lives are put back in orbit. Sitting across an airplane, 35 feet, 435,000 feet above ground. What do we need most? We need the holy love of God. Don't shatter the hyphen. Let's pray. Father, we ask by the Spirit that you would bring together what for some of us might feel contrary. That we with um, the prophet Isaiah would, 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 would have a, a, a glance, a, an image, a picture. You are holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. that we'd have an increasing view of your holiness, of your utter perfections, your utter otherness, that God, you would be God. We see all the ways we deserve the indictments, all the ways we've failed, all the ways we've sinned. Oh, that the cross of Jesus Christ would not be cheapened. but that that love that you lavished upon us would be seen as much grander and greater than we could dare dream. Call us back into this holy love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.